Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So hello. We've got half an hour which we'll pass at a clip. I know how uh, sitting still in this... uh, busy era, even after that lovely session, you might all be thinking about your cup of coffee. But we want to have a discussion with somebody who's unbelievably well qualified to talk about talent today and talent tomorrow. He's had more sort of careers within a career than most of us. Engineer, MBA, management consultant, CEO for five years of Hayes, which is, uh, if not the largest, one of the largest recruitment firms in the world, Alistair Cox. Hello. Morning. Good morning. Um, We're going to talk partly about your career and then how and why that informs your thinking about everybody else's careers. Sure. So how did it get to be so varied? How did you train as an engineer, get into management consultancy and now run Hayes? Give us the snapshot. You've made me sound like a a bit of a job hopper. Polymath. (laughs) Polymath. Polymath. Uh, I am an engineer by training. I studied aeronautical engineering at, uh, at university here in the UK back in the, uh, in the 70s. And I took, I think they still exist actually, a 131 sandwich course with um, somebody in the room today, British Aerospace. So I'd like to publicly thank them for getting me on the, uh, on the ladder, if you like, from the tender age of 17. And uh, it was, originally it was called Hawker Sidley, the business that I started with as, a, as an apprentice aircraft engineer, working out in Hull in East Yorkshire. Uh, British Aerospace, as then was, uh, sponsored me through university, finished off my, um, uh, my apprenticeship after university. So, so I was very lucky and fortunate, and it's, it's, it's very good to see, encouraging to see, that British Aerospace still has schemes like that. I think about 1,000 apprentices mm-hmm right now mm-hmm. within the system. So, so that, that's great news and it certainly uh, did me the power of good. After graduating, I then, I was actually looking for something that was a bit more international, a bit more immediately international. And I ended up joining a company called Schlumberger. Some of you may have heard about Schlumberger. It's, uh, it's a global oil field services company that helps oil explorers and oil producers do a better job at finding oil and then uh, producing it. Why international, though? It's interesting you say that as if it's a given, but why international? What was uh, your global outlook? You know, I grew up in, in Leeds. I went to work in Hull, and I just started to think there might be a, a world <laughs> a little further beyond the People's Republic of Yorkshire. I know, we, I know it is the centre of the universe, but uh, <laughs> I wanted to see what everybody else was I was just counting the minutes before the Yorkshire moment came in. It wasn't very long. Um, didn't take me even five minutes, did it, Drew? Really? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, but it is a big wide world out there, and I think that there is a message for people. People often say to me today, should I go get international experience? And I say, look, it's your choice and it's not for everybody, and there'll be times and circumstances where it's not right or you just can't do it. But for me personally, because I can only really relate to what's, what's worked for me, it, was being, it has been absolutely a core part of how I built my career and my life. I met my wife overseas, I worked in Asia, I've worked in, in, in continental Europe, I've worked in the States, 
and I don't regret any of it. And I think it actually, it has definitely helped me as I've developed myself as an individual and as I've developed my career. I think part of the challenge for tomorrow's worker or today's worker repurposing themselves for tomorrow's environment is to think globally, is to be a mobile worker that we're all shadow boxing, an invisible competitor in a different market. But at the same time, each market is highly local. I mean, you don't have... The person running Russia for Hayes is not the person running UK. And in fact, in your latest skills report, your head of Russia says part of the problem is Russians only want to hire Russians. That is a part of the problem, but they're having to change that, by the way, because there aren't enough Russians with the right skills to fill the jobs in Russia today. So is part of the problem the almost the nationalism of countries not wanting to let outsiders in, or is it that we're in fact quite restricted in our ambitions? Have you got any observations? I mean, you've got 150,000 CVs passing your through your books each year? Uh, we get a lot more than that. Um, it's Actually, quite... it's each month, isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. We, we it's each get... month. Well, we, we did a... Just on that, there's, there's some quite frightening stats in the world of jobs and people trying to find jobs these days. At the, the velocity of applications coming for things. Yeah, and, and there's, there's some interesting stuff in the FT just this morning about BP had, I think, 100 jobs and they got 3,000 applicants. We get online around the world every month one million applications online. Now, our business has become an online business. So that's how people communicate these days, that they don't go into the office to right. hand in a piece of paper. Right. They email it to you. So, so that is by far the largest communication channel, electronic means. But a million applications around the world every month, that's a lot of stuff coming at you. And how are they processed initially? Manually, there's got to be some manual no, elements. have to do a lot of oh. automatic you can categorise, you can use software to categorise things and, and shortlist things quickly. But ultimately, somebody's got to go through it. You're absolutely right. And that's, that's kind of the essence of, of, of what we do. But to, to your point about um, d should everybody think global if actually most jobs are local, because you're right, most jobs are local, then I think people have got to have the recognition that they may not be global, but they're operating in a global world. And I, I used to, in my last job before Hayes, five years ago, I ran an IT services company in the UK, a company called Zanta. Ran that for five years. And at that time, this is from 2002 through to 2007, at that time, the whole offshoring wave of moving jobs to overseas countries in terms of either software initially, software development, or then support services... Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm not talking kind of call centres because we were doing more software development and complex process management, like the processing of management accounts, mm -hmm. which is non-trivial for the accountants in the room. Um, and, and we were moving that from onshore to offshore locations. We built a team in India of 6,000 qualified professionals, either as software computer scientists or as accountants and, and processors, if you like. 6,000 people. That contrasted with a workforce in the UK, which was about 3,000 people. And people would say to me, say, what, wh why are we doing this? And I said, because the, the, this, these are the economic pressures of the world. And what you need to understand, if you are a software programmer, say, in the UK, is you're not co competing against the guy down the road. You're competing against the guy in Bangalore. And if he's better, more adaptable, more motivated... He's obviously on a lower cost structure, so he's more economic from a client standpoint. That's what you're up against. 
And you have to recognize that you have skills that are in a global arena, not a local arena, even though your job at the moment may be a local one. And just getting that penny to mm. drop for people was quite important. How worried are you that in the UK we are not thinking about these bigger picture issues? I mean, in your skills index, which mm. I think everybody's got, we're right in the middle of the world. We are not excelling, are we, in no. Britain? No. Okay. Why is that when we've got brilliance in engineering, in innovation, in design, in all sorts of things, we tick the box technically. Why is Britain not doing better? Well, why did we do this, why did we do this piece of research which has become the Hayes Index? And I'm, I'm glad everybody's got a copy. If you haven't, there's some at the back, actually. We just released it a couple Very of weeks good. ago. Yeah. And, and the, the genesis of this was, you know, we, we deal with literally tens of thousands of clients all the time. Every month we will put people in the UK alone into about 6,000 different organisations. Some of the biggest companies in the world and some of the smallest SMEs. I mean, that is our, our playing field. Worldwide we probably talk to 30,000 clients in, in a year. And we keep getting the same message. Here we are in a world that feels economically volatile at best and, and, and depressed maybe at worst. doesn't feel economically wonderful, let's put it that way. Uh, and we have very high levels of unemployment around the world, historically. We've got very, very troubling youth unemployment in a number of countries. Youth unemployment in Spain is 55% today. It's about 19% in this country, neither of which are good numbers. But if more than half of your young people have not got a job, mm. and most of them have never had a job, I think that's a society problem as well as an economic problem. Um, so we're seeing these big levels of unemployed people and almost desperation to get a job, and yet massive, massive skill shortages, unfilled jobs at the higher end. And we see it everywhere all the time. And we're thinking, what, what's going on here? Clearly there's a supply-demand imbalance in economic terms. So we did this piece of research to try and understand this anecdotal stuff that we kept hearing from clients and, 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 and employees, what was really going on. We, and it became the Hayes Index. And the Hayes Index is really trying to have a very simple one-number measure on whether a, a country's professional labour market is lax or tight at that point in time. What's become more interesting is not the headline number between 0 and 10, mm. and the UK is a 5, and you might say, well, that sounds OK then. It's not OK, because the, the devil is in the details of everything in life. And if you drill under the yeah. headline number, it's got things like, is education helping? Yeah. Is there a talent mismatch, i.e. lots mm. of unfilled jobs, lots of people looking for jobs? Uh, is there wage pressure? Where is that wage pressure? Is the labour market itself quite flexible, or is it relatively rigid? All of these are, according to The Economists, factors that will influence whether you've got a tight or a lax labour market at that point in time. And for me, it's looking at each of those that's interesting, because you might say the UK is a five, therefore it's all right, it's not all right. There is very little wage pressure mm. in this country at the moment, but there is a huge talent mismatch. And I would argue that's because the economy is in such a difficult situation that we're not creating the new jobs yet by any stretch of imagination. And, and that means that things have not become too bad. As the economy starts to slowly recover, let's hope it is on that track now, if we assume that's the base scenario of very modest, somewhat anemic, but hopefully steady growth with no more downside shocks, 
then we are going to start to see some real pressure building up in the skilled labour market because we already have shortages. So IT is short in areas like .NET and Java. Healthcare is short. And when you look at ageing demographics in the West, that's going to become a real problem for us. Uh, areas, people might say the banking financial services sector is dead. It's, it's pretty dead, but there are areas around risk and regulation and compliance which are red hot. Uh, and for understandable reasons. So there's lots going on. So the UK is not in a great place. But if you could say there are two or three things that you, if you like, attribute blame for this unhealthy or worrying picture, mm. is it the um, tightening of immigration on skilled labour from overseas, which is a big uh, issue? Is it, is it education that we are somehow not... Um, is there a brain drain or is there a sort of brain freeze before, you know, what, what, uh, because I'm not sure I've seen that follow-up analysis yet. Right. We, we proposed in, in, the, um, um, in, in, in the index, we said that there's, there's kind of a three-pronged approach. Yeah. Short-term band-aid fixes through to the long-term yeah. solution to the problem. Uh, and I think the points you've made are, are kind of covered in all of those. Longer term... The, the jobs that are available in this country and in very many other countries around the world today are jobs that require a set of skills that the university systems in general are not producing in sufficient quantity. So if you look at engineering in this country today, there are high-end engineering jobs, and yet we produce out of about... I think we produce something like three-quarters of a million graduates. There'll be people in the audience that know the stats better than me, but something like three-quarters of a million graduates come out of UK... Uh, institutions per year. Less than 100,000 of those do the STEM subjects, and about a quarter of those don't do STEM careers. They'll go off into you know, banking, for example, was, was, a, was a great sink of engineering-type qualified people. Hang on, who what's became, a STEM career? Have I missed a major... Well, something in terms of engineering or science or technology <laughs> career. So you may have studied computer science, but then you go and become a banker. You know, so you've studied a STEM subject and you've not used it in your that career. That acronym didn't make it into the Tatler Guide to <laughs> acronyms that I read the other day, but it's very good. I like that I'll one. I'll stick a, a trademark but, on but it I immediately. Mean, but let's just, stop, let's just stay on education, because education has come up this morning and... Yeah. This event is with Cass Business School, where I've got a hat and so on. I mean, that is a major indictment oh. of higher and further education, that, that an absolute fraction of graduates are sort of not fit for purpose for, the, for, for what you're calling the skills mismatch. Well, and that, I, I'm looking at the future. Uh, are you saying, saying that, though? Are you I'm saying, saying that? that, that right, I okay. think the data suggests that here are these jobs, and they are in these particular areas. Right. Broadly, the more technical areas. Here are these quantity of people coming out of, of schooling and they don't have the technical skills, they haven't been trained in the technical skills to match those jobs. And I would argue that some of those jobs like technology, longer term healthcare, engineering, energy, those are, in my view, more likely to be long term sustainable required jobs because those industries, we're not going to become less energy intensive as a, as a, as a as a species, are we? Right. So these jobs are going to be around for some time. We're not producing today enough people. A lot of those people don't stay in that field upon graduation. So what are we going to do longer term to stimulate? I don't think it's a question of capacity. I think it's a question of, of motivating people to want to study in those subjects because that's where their careers 
where, where, where their, their studies will probably give them the most relevant skills for where the careers will be. Now, that's the long term. If, if you fix the problem today, people say to me, can you get me a 10 years experienced project manager? Right, fine. So they've had five years of, of education, higher education, and 10 years of experience. So we're 15 years away from solving that problem, if you like. Mm -hmm. So it's a long-term solution. But you know, we should start at some stage. And, and early anecdotal evidence is the, the applications for the engineering-type disciplines has picked up around the universities in the last 12, 24 months. But I think it's too early to say that the problem is in, the, in being fixed. But it does need to be fixed. Short-term... Here we are as a country saying we have to develop industries which are kind of the, the leading edge. There's no point being a cheap producer of mass goods right. because we cannot be, because we cannot be cheap enough. Our, we, our position on the cost curve is so far to the right-hand end. We cannot become the cheap supplier of world's goods. So we have to become the more innovative, innovative developer, high-end manufacturing, creative industries, technology, etc. These requires... A, a certain set of skills. If we want to be the world's best in that, we need to be able to access the very best people in the world. And let's face it, the very best people in the world at something usually have got choice. And in many industries, they tend to be quite mobile people. Here we are in the UK, having quite recently put in um, a skilled migration policy which actively puts in place barriers mm. to skilled people from outside the EU coming into the UK. You can come into the UK from anywhere in the EU, even if you have no skills at all. That's not what we need in this country. What we need is the ability for employers to say, I need the best talent because I'm competing on a global stage. I have to have access to the best talent, and I have to give that talent the security that if they come here, they can stay here and build their own livelihood. Yeah. And the way the visa systems now work, I, I've got lots of evidence where clients have said, Countries compete for me to put my business in their country. They'll fast-track visas, they'll allow me to bring in what I need. And it's not mass migration, it's highly skilled migration that we're talking yeah. about. I'll even give you a tax incentive to establish your R&D facilities in my country, for example. So people are very, countries are very proactive at trying to attract this talent in. We say, right, we're going to drastically reduce the number of, of, of skilled visas will make it quite uncertain the timing of when you might get them and will give you no certainty whether you'll be able to keep them for the longer term. Did the government ask a company like you what you thought of this policy? Not explicitly. Right. But you know, I don't think we're alone at saying... Is that not a matter of regret? I mean, it's you would have thought... It's a matter of regret to me. <laughs> yeah. When I, yeah. When I see organisations who could be establishing, for example, R&D facilities in this country which will employ hundreds yeah. of, of highly paid people who will pay tax, will contribute to the GDP, will contribute to society, will create more jobs. Because if you build an R&D centre, it's not just a bunch of scientists. There will be administration and other jobs will be spawned for other people. When people say, I can't get enough of what I need relatively straightforwardly in this country because of these barriers, I'll put it in Singapore. Mm. then I think, well, that's a, that's a loss for Britain. It's a but great gain for Singapore, but it's a loss for us. But Singapore is often cited, isn't it, as the great dreamy economy, leaving aside its 
political infrastructure, everybody says, oh, if only it could be like Singapore, we want the education system, we want the drive, we want the work ethic. So what is going wrong with the, the not-yet-employed worker group? You've talked about the under-25s. You know, I call them the not-yet-employed. I've been to schools... Um, Robert Peston, the business editor of the BBC, is part of founder of something called Speakers for Schools that goes to state schools. It's pretty depressing, the schools I've been into, the lack of ambition displayed by students in inner city comps. You know, they do, on the whole, if one can generalise, uh, look at one fairly dumbly when you say, what are you interested in? And it's as if no one's actually asked them that question, least of all themselves. Mm. Now, that should be quite easy to fix, shouldn't it? Well, sitting in a room like this, you might argue it's easy to fix, but I don't think people have not recognised that for a while. But we haven't made a whole lot of progress on it, let's face it. I mean, David Miliband stood up, I think it was last week, and said, if you mess around at school, it is no joke. You know, trying to get that message home, it is not okay to mess around at school. Because if you leave with no qualifications you are going to really struggle to get a job. And we've got people now who are probably in their third generation in a household that has never worked. So where are the role models? And I can imagine it's desperately difficult growing up in that environment to say, I'm going to burst out of this. I mean, I, I've, I've never been in that situation, but I can imagine it's not easy. But if we're not careful, we, there are a million unemployed youngsters in this country right now, many of whom may never work. What, what, I mean, from an econ economist standpoint, what a phenomenal waste of resource but from a society standpoint that's just got to be wrong I suppose where I'm heading is is in a way that the aspect of the work the job market that interests me which is um, the soft skills and their impact on productivity mm -hmm. and that is what we call I call knowledge networking mm. having curiosity having the skills to make connections to make your own luck you know, someone made you interested in the world as well as you being interested in the world in Yorkshire. Someone gave you the confidence to say, you know, hmm. was it a book you read, a programme you watched with somebody? I mean, how do we change the definition of what a good CV looks like? Hmm. A major uh, law firm said to me the other day, hallelujah, that they were thinking of putting networking and the ability to absorb information and have eye contact and things as part of their tick boxes when they're interviewing graduates. Mm. You know, have we made a mistake in the way we assess people's suitability and eligibility for work and almost overemphasize the qualifications when the life skills, the ability to sort of give confidence to an employer mm. that you can make it work, mm. a kind of secondary? Should they not, in fact, become more primary? It's a very interesting point, actually. Um, and I think there's a yin and yang between the, the harder skills, the technical skills, and, and what you've defined as the softer skills. For me, the softer skills are things like the ability to be articulate and communicate, the ability to work with other people, the ability to be, you know, on time, mm. you know, the structure of doing work. You know, th those are the softer skills that... that are hugely critical, but they cannot replace the technical skills. You know, I couldn't put a mining engineer into a deep underground mine unless he knew how to be a mining engineer. 
I, I, I wouldn't fly on a plane unless the person at the front knew what they were doing. You know, so you cannot just have soft skills and that will be okay. But equally, I think the point you make, maybe we've swung too much towards just the hard technical skills are all that counts. I think there may be an element of truth in that because I, I often see people who are highly skilled on the harder side that couldn't string an argument together. Sort of almost couldn't autistic socially. In some ways, in some ways. But is it, I, I, it's getting that yin and yang But isn't right. it also the case that we might, I would say, be overlooking an entire new generation of jobs that Britain and indeed any economy could cultivate, which is what I would call the joining up jobs, the communication of we need this new skill, how to bed in somebody who's landed from Manchester in Mumbai to do the mm. job. I mean, I know that we talk about saying we want the technical skills, we continue to want engineers, we want designers, we want innovators, we want da-da-da. But actually, why can't we aspire to have better managers? Mm. Well, I think that, that if there is a message to people to, to improve their chances of how do you break in yeah. to the world of work, making sure you're very clear on your softer skills and being able to articulate them so that you look like somebody that is not just good on paper but will fit in and contribute into the culture of my organisation is, is absolutely key. And some, each individual needs to understand what they are as well as just who they are, if you like. I think that's hugely important. And in a way, this, this comes back to, to what we do as, as, as recruiters. You know, you, you could say to me, Right, I need a, a five years qualified accountant specialising in tax, and I can give you 10 CVs. They are all perfect on paper. But I can then tell you, and the three that will fit in with the culture of your organisation are these three. And I wouldn't touch those two because they will be perfect for a different type of culture. Organisations have got culture. And if like I said to you, culture. I want a candidate who reads The Economist and likes poetry, would you say why? Or would you say, yes, I see where you're coming from? We would say, we would probably say why, but we would, <laughs> we would probably understand that that's indicating something about the personality and culture of that individual that fits well with you. We spend a lot of time with our clients understanding how are you successful in your business. Equally, what are the attributes and characteristics that make people unsuccessful in your business? Because right. people are different. So a large part of what we do is not just you know, giving you a CV that technically looks okay. It's actually giving you somebody that's got the hard skills, but we've also assessed their softer skills and their ability to fit culturally with you. Because the, the cost of a bad hire is not just, you know, well, we got the wrong one, can we have a different one? It's the six months of yeah. wasted effort and the lack of contribution during that time. It's a huge cost. So, that, you know, people say to us, Will social media uh, completely disintermediate the, the recruitment industry and make it irrelevant and extinct? And I say no, because social media alone cannot actually assess the cultural fit of individuals with the culture of organisations. Well, this brings us on to the point you told me just before we came in about your relationship with LinkedIn, mm. about which I have a sort of ambivalent <laughs> feeling because I worry about our attraction to scale when in fact it seems to me human beings operate much more better in an intimate setting and so social media and technology enables your million online applications which yeah. actually is a bit freaky if you think about it I mean it, how it good you know you're going to be choosing keywords you know words like captain and words like leadership which doesn't you know so really, in a sense, we need more and more and more teeny-weeny filters, don't we? So how, how is that relationship with LinkedIn going to 
simplify and continue to personalise? Again, you've got to marry the, the, uh, the ability to reach in a big way into the outside world that, that electronic media and social media in particular gives you. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon over the last two, three years. You've got to marry that up with the ability then to build personal relationships. You cannot replace one with the other. But there's a, there's a big debate that rages in the recruitment world, whether social media and for us in the professional recruitment world, whether LinkedIn in particular is, if you like, a friend or a foe. And there's two, two very clear schools of thought. And we've thought a lot about this in, in Hayes, and we've said, actually, if you, if you use it correctly, it's a big, big friend. Because the biggest barrier that we have to servicing our clients is finding enough choice of absolutely perfect candidates at the right time for the right job. It comes back to this talent mismatch. Yeah. There's lots of good jobs around and not enough good people to fill them. And, and we act, if you like, as the broker, the, 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 the marriage maker. In, uh, we call in, it the shidduch, don't we? In my world, in my Yorkshire. My Jewish Sounds Yorkshire. Quite rude. No, no, it's, it means matchmaking. Now, look, we've got five minutes before coffee to talk about matchmaking and skills and what do we feel. Yeah. Um, so we've got some uh, microphones, haven't we? Neil Slater from the Open University. I don't know if you were at the previous panel session. I uh, saw most a of, bit it. of it. Okay, well, Andy Doyle from ITV... Uh, was talking about the fact that they get many of their new recruits from uh, their apprenticeship scheme and a lot of these people don't even know how to shake hands. Uh, I just wonder how you respond to that um, from a, a company that selects people in a completely different way perhaps, uh, looking at this, this complete mismatch we have between the, the people that need jobs and, the, and filling those jobs that need filled. Um, how do, you, how do your algorithms and your selection processes, how are they going to respond to that huge body of talent out there that perhaps doesn't have the skills to apply for jobs uh, that they might ultimately be quite well suited for? The softer skills? Yeah. Ultimately, it's not our job to train people in how to be articulate, present themselves, work in a team. I think people have got to take that upon themselves and accept personal accountability for making themselves more employable in the area that they want to be in. And I think, if anything, abdicating personal accountability is an issue. I see it all the time. People have a sense of entitlement. Somebody should do this for me. And I say, no, make your own luck, to use uh, Julia's words. You make your own market. And if you're not prepared to sort yourself out, then you know, why should anybody else? So I'm a, I'm a little bit blunt on that. Uh, but I think if people understood, look, this is what a, com a company, an organisation is going to be looking for. You are going to be working in teams. You, you are going to sometimes have to be quite flexible or what, whatever it is, right? And people understand, okay, fine, how do I get that? Then, then I think we'll, at least we'll make a step along the way. Personally, I think work experience of some shape or form mm. is hugely valuable. I was incredibly dismayed to sit with a headmaster once who said, work experience is is an administrative nightmare, it's a weak junket, the poor kids get sent out to make the tea, and you know, we just don't do it anymore in our school. And, and I personally think that is completely wrong. If that's what your kids are doing, then maybe you should be doing something a little bit better. But my, my eldest lad, he's now 17, he did a bit of work experience last year. He said, look, uh, I have to do a week's work experience. I said, well, let's do two or three then. 
because what, what are you going to know in a week? You mm. know, you'll have just found out where to go and where to hang your coat up and it'll be Friday. So, so he spent a little bit longer. And, and just the, 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 the principle of being in a work environment, you have to be here at 9 o'clock and 10 past 9 doesn't work and you do have to talk to people and you will be asked to do things and you can't be the boss on day one. You do end up at the bottom of the ladder. You know, I started on the shop floor in, in Hull mm. learning how to use milling machines. You know. And you have to accept that that is how it is and, and mm. deal with it. I think it's a bit of a wake-up call. Don't you think as well that partly the justified row about unpaid internships has slightly skewed us off the reality that it is the first step on the ladder? It is the first step. And you do need, I think, to get just better at integrating work placements. There has to be a sort of name and shame culture that if you, you know, and social media can be very advantageous for this. If your kid goes to a company that really does sit them in a cupboard and make them get the tea, that's not giving them valuable work experience. They should be then evaluated accordingly. But I I agree with you that we uh, should continue to promote a very, very engaged work placement programme. If you don't see the inside of an office, you don't know whether you like office life. Exactly, and then you turn up for a proper interview for a proper job and you've never been in a work environment. How do you Mm. know how you need to be? when you've never actually yep. seen it. I can talk to you till you're blue in the face about what you need to dress like and look like and talk like, but you have to have experienced it. And I think doing, even if it's three weeks unpaid internship or whatever, that will have made you a, a better, a person that better understands what the issues are than if you'd never done it. Just a comment to add to that really, Maureen McCarricker from the UK Commission for Employment and Skills, not only is work experience crucial, Uh, and can be helpful actually in employers seeking to nurture a talent pipeline but it's getting harder and harder for young people to get so the numbers of youngsters who are earning and learning so having Saturday jobs really has halved over the last 10 years and the entry level jobs where they traditionally learn those soft skills uh, in shops, in cafes and so on are either drying up or being taken at the moment during the recession by more experienced people. So it is more crucial than ever that we, we get better work experience. Thank you. Any more? At DESA, University of the Arts London. I just wonder where you see the role of uh, around the fuzzy edges of STEM for subjects such as design. I'm thinking, you know, James Dyson, he a vacuum cleaner, such a fine art graduate, studied at the Royal College of Arts, um, Jonathan Ive. The reason we love Apple is because the design is so great. So that, that's, um, that collaboration is really important, and I just want to see how we support that when we actually have to deal with that shortage of the STEM skills. Thank you. Henrietta Rolf, Angela Halden. Just going back to the, the STEM issue, um, I, until last year, was the CEO of City University, which has Casper's a school, but also an engineering school and informatics school. There is no question in my mind they will fill their boots if there are enough candidates. The problem is, and if you look at the stats, is the applications for STEM subjects has fallen. Um, So I don't think it's that universities are deliberately pushing out lots and lots of arts graduates. They would push out STEM graduates if if, if the demand was there. Uh, There seems to be a lack of engineering technicians rather than engineers is what some of the big companies tell us. Engineers are not paid as much as accountants. And I actually challenged the chairman of BAE on this. I said, well, if you paid your, your engineers as much, do you think actually you might be able to recruit some more? You might find people not going into banking, but going into that. 
is that something that is people are tackling? And how does STEM jobs be made more attractive in a world that all the coverage in the press is about cultural jobs and the glamorous media jobs? Just while the microphone is being handed to the back, I'll say there is another acronym, the one that was in Tatler, which is FOMA. Does anyone know what FOMA is? F-O-M-A. It's the young people's acronym, Fear of Missing Out. Mike Richardson from KH Recruitment. Um, work experience is vital. The, the youngsters that we find work for are always people who have done other work before, no matter what it might be, whether it's working for grandma, cutting the grass, whatever it could be, and evidence of some work. Um, the lady here is quite right. There are fewer and fewer people getting work experience from schools. The reason is it's an administrative burden. It's a nightmare. Um, and Andy is quite wrong when he says youngsters and work experience will be making the tea in an office. They're not allowed to make tea. It's too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> right, so STEM, design, young people, and uh, again, back to this academic pipeline. Yeah, I mean, on the design point, I think, is well made. And I think people like Jonathan and I, James Dyson, are, are great role models of people who have come through the design route. But they've used their skills into an area where there are highly paid, sustainable jobs. And I think that's the key linking in the jigsaw. There's no point doing design so you can just be interested in design. You, I mean, you can do that, but it may not get you a job. And don't complain if you can't get a job if you don't make that connection, is, is, is my message. But I think high-end design and the use of that to make products that people then are happy to pay for is, is a key part. And I think we, we are good as a nation at doing that. I mean, the guy that is really behind Apple is Jonathan Knight. Yeah. Um, the point on the, uh, the, the pipeline of, of people studying, I completely agree with you. The, the incentives for people to do these subjects has not been great. They're, they're seen generally as very difficult subjects. They're, they're, they're incredibly rigorous. They're, they, some people say they're a bit boring. You know, there's lots of maths involved. It doesn't turn everybody on. Uh, and in a world where there's lots of other jobs in, in things that are perceived as easier and more interesting, then you can understand why people drifted away from it, because they have drifted away in, in great numbers, by the way. I'd point to Germany as a place that, that recogni recognises the value that engineering brings to its, its economy. Why is Germany probably the best-performing nation in, in Europe? doesn't say much these days, but it is, by a long way. It's because they've got a fantastic broad-based infrastructure and economy that is driven by high-end engineering. And the fact that you are a hair doctor or engineer, as opposed to we think of as an engineer as they've come to fix the washing machine, for example. Unfortunately, that's how it has become in this country. And they pay them properly. And they are still massively short of engineers. Germany is short of 75,000 highly paid engineers who will all earn more than 100,000 euros a year. And they are crying out to find them. And we are helping them find them, right? Where is that status in the engineering world in the UK? And it's a long, long way off. I do detect that maybe it's starting to turn because people are starting to see if you go in as an oil engineer, you earn good money. The banking world is dead. There's no point doing engineering and trying to get a job as an investment banker. Those jobs do not exist today and may not for some time to come. So maybe the drawbridge has been pulled up a little bit there. But anything we can do to motivate people to go down that route, the better. I think... You know, people have views on tuition fees. But if you think, I'm going to come out of a university with north of £30,000 worth of debt now, and I know I won't get a job, but I will have had three or four nice years, 
then I think that might sharpen people's focus about, well, where will the job be at the end of the day? And will I study something that might not be the easiest thing in the world, but I'm going to university to further my career as opposed to do something I'm interested in alone? And I think that would, would help. Whether anybody is brave enough to incentivize, use pricing as a lever, you know, in market economics, price is a lever for driving supply and demand. Should somebody use price university tuition fees as a lever to motivate people to do the things that the country needs or not? Controversial, but if it was a free market economy, they would. And finally, the red tape point. How There's far too much of it. Um, I thought you might agree with the other recruiter in the room. <laughs> you won't make the tea, but you'll be get sent to Starbucks. Actually, no, Costa Coffee now to get the tea and, and the coffee. Okay. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, the big generator of jobs in this country in the 10 years up to the recession hitting were the SMEs. Two-thirds of all new jobs created in Britain from 97 to 2007 were created by companies that employ less than 50 people. Those companies are not employing any additional people today because they're worried about the economy for obvious reasons. They, are, they believe it's incredibly f uh, financially onerous to employ people. Paying the government 13% national insurance for the right to employ somebody is a straightforward tax on jobs. And, you know, if you're worried about your prospects, that's going to be another hurdle to you creating one more job. And employment legislation has become so onerous that small companies don't have the wherewithal to deal with it. And they just say, I'd rather not recruit more people and create more jobs because, frankly, right now, it's too onerous. Thank you. Well, no FOMA. We didn't miss out. Lots more STEM. Ten minutes late, but it was worth it. Thank you very much, Alistair Cox. Let's go and have Thank some you. coffee. Thank you. Thank you very much.